We're in a series here about the church, and we've spent uh, the fall, the first sermon was back in August, and we've just been talking about different aspects of the church. And typically we preach through books of the Bible, but I think it's at some point helpful to to sort of stand back and say, well, we're a church, what does that mean in all its different facets? And we've covered a lot of ground In the last couple of sermons, we've been talking about authority, authority within the church. And they're going to sort of move slightly to how do we live together? How do we live as a family, a church family? How do we manage that? And so this sermon talks about church discipline or how to uh, to resolve conflict. And then next week, we want to talk about forgiveness, and it just follows in the same passage. So next week, we'll be in Matthew 18, verse 21. But this morning, I want us to look at this um, three-step process that Jesus gives his disciples in dealing with a brother or a sister who sins against you. So let's stand together as we read Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. The Protestant Reformation began around the 1500s and it marked the separation between the Catholics and those who were protesting, who then were known as Protestants, not surprisingly. And at that time, a a common question arose from those breaking away from the Catholic Church, and that question was, what are the marks of a true church? How do I know I'm getting involved in a true church? What criteria am I using and you can imagine if all you've all ever known, in fact, all anyone has ever known, your parents, their parents, their parents before them, all they've ever known is the Catholic Church. To even think that there would be a different church or that there would be a choice or that there would be a denomination, all stuff that we all think is very common, that, that wouldn't even have been a category in which to think in the 1500s. And so you can imagine that as other churches uh, grew or popped up in different areas, especially in Europe, the question arose, well, how do I know? What criteria, criteria do I use to determine whether I'm getting involved in a true church? And I think you can appreciate it even just from your own place in the pew because at some point everyone here was a visitor. 
and it was your first time or it was your first few times coming and you sat there just like I would have sat there and said, well, I have some kind of criteria. There's some kind of things I'm looking for. And as you sit there, whether it happens to be the music, it happens to be the sermon, it happens to be the people you're sitting next to, whatever it is, you have them in your mind and you're assessing whether, and you should assess, whether this is the place that you want to join. These folks that came up had that same kind of question at some point just a few months ago as they began to ask questions about Christ Community Church. And in the 1500s, the Reformers agreed that there were three marks everyone should look for in judging whether you've gotten involved with a true church. Now, just think for a moment. If, if we just said, what, what are the three marks that you would be using? What are the three marks that you would say, that makes it a true church? What would be your top three? The universal agreement from the reformers were, number one, faithful preaching of God's word. Number two, rightly administering the sacraments, baptism and communion. And number three, faithfully exercising church discipline. Now, it's my guess that maybe a lot of us would have had number one on there, something about God's word. Maybe a few few less would have said something about the sacraments, but I'm just guessing that many of us probably would have not put uh, the faithful exercise of church discipline in our top three. Church discipline sometimes just seems the words seem like an oxymoron. You know, you know, oxymoron is just two words that don't go together. Church discipline sometimes is that way. The vegetarian meatball. I mean, you can't have a meatball that's just made of vegetables, airplane food, (laughs) only choice. Well, it's if it's your only choice, then it's not a choice. Yeah, okay. Country music. I mean, all those (laughs) oxymorons, two words that don't (laughs) go together. Some people won't listen now for the rest of the sermon. Even though church discipline might not have made our top three, it seems important for the reformers to say it made the top three. And it seems even in this passage that Jesus understood that in order for a church body to stay together, if we're going to have any group of people, whether it's in a house church or something much larger, a group of people are going to need some kind of system in learning how to stay together in order to thrive as a church There's got to be some kind of system of discipline. And so let me make uh, three preliminary marks before we get to the three-step process. Because I think these are things that you want to think through before you get to step number one. Step number one is you go and you talk to the person face-to-face. And, of course, if that doesn't work, then you take one or two along. And if that doesn't work, then you come to the church with the issue. But I think that there's some things that we need to think about even before we get to step number one. And those are, I want to mention three things. First, you, you see that in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, that the, the church is often compared to a family. And I'm positive that everyone here understands that there will be conflict in every family. 
I doubt anyone here would look down the aisle with their family and say, I don't know what he's talking about. We don't have any conflict in our house. That seems so foreign to me that he would even say that. I think every family understands there is going to be conflict. The question is, is how is it going to be worked out? And so the first point is that when we come together as a family, we, we shouldn't be surprised if we come into conflict in some way. And I think sometimes that catches people off guard. Maybe particularly new believers, you come in and think, well, everyone here is a Christian, so everybody's going to think the same. And what they mean is everybody's going to think like me. And everybody's not going to think like you. And then when you get into some kind of group, and it really doesn't matter if you're on the service team, if you're a deacon, if you're on the staff, if you're an elder, if you're a Sunday school teacher, it really won't matter. The only way you can avoid it is to sit in the back and go leave early, grab a donut, and never talk to anybody. But if you're going to be in part of the church family, you should anticipate, you should expect that there's going to be some kind of conflict. It shouldn't be something that is surprising. And I think the text bears that out because before Jesus talks about this in verse 15, if you go back to chapter or chapter 18, verse one, he talks about different problems that are going to happen. Let me just help you see those verses one through four. There are going to be times that the leaders in the church are going to try to figure out who's the greatest. There are going to be times that the that the top tier of leadership, in this case, it was the disciples. And I'm not saying this is a wonderful attribute. I'm just saying you can anticipate this happening, that inside that leadership context, there's going to be some fighting over, well, who's got the right idea and who's got the right way and who's the greatest? And if you're going to have that, you're going to have to understand how do we resolve that conflict? Verses 5 through 9 in that chapter, every member is going to be faced with all kinds of severe temptations. And some of those members are going to fail. So how do you deal with those? Verses 10 through 14, some members are going to wander away from the faith. And it's going to be required that some folks in the family go chase after those people. How do you do that well? And then just in our text here today, if your brother sins against you, think could have been said when your brother sins against you. When this happens, it is going to happen, Jesus is saying. So I'm giving you a system now to know when that happens, don't be surprised, but enter into a, a system that will begin to help bring those two people Back together. So, preliminary thought number one is we shouldn't be surprised when conflict happens. Number two, consider the wisdom of the Proverbs. Listen to this Proverbs 12 16. A fool shows his annoyance at once. A fool shows his annoyance at once. But a prudent man overlooks an insult. See, before you even get to step one, before you get to the one-on-one, just you want to have this, these verses like a playbook in your mind to just ask yourself, when something's happened to me, am I a fool that's got to show his annoyance at once? Or, or is it possible I, I should be like the prudent man who, who steps back and 
can, can say, this, at this point, I can overlook that insult. Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. See, not everything is worth chasing after. Not everything said is worth your scowl. I mean, if you've got to have an immediate, an immediate reaction, an immediate opinion about everything that's said, you're not that fun to live with. You make a hard family member because everything doesn't have the same value. But if you give it the same value in your face, if you give it the same value in your emotions, then you just wear people out. If I have the same reaction to Nancy, she keeps squeezing the toothpaste from the middle. And it drives me crazy because then I, then I got to get it back from the bottom and I set it in nicely and she doesn't do that. Well, is that, does that, is that, do I got to get a scowl on that? Come on, honey, let's get the toothpaste back in the two. No. But, but if you pick up on those things, if you can't overlook something, if, if she can't overlook the myriad of things in my life, it's going to be hard to live together as a family. And so you have to first sort of step back before you say something to say, is this one of those things that it would be to the glory of God to just not say anything? That's not everything, but it is some things. And you might want to step back and ask yourself which one of those things might be the case. Finally, a prior step to these three steps. Consider the wisdom of Jesus. Matthew 7, 3 through 5. And I love the, I I think I see or hear the humor in Jesus' description here. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let's take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So before we get to the one-on-one, before we begin this system of conflict resolution, we, again, we need to take a step back and we need to examine ourselves and say, you know, before I address my, my family member, before I address my church brother, before I begin to enter in on that, I need to step back and say, do I, do I have any logs coming out of my own eye? Is there anything about this conflict that I've participated in some way that I need to change? I need to ask forgiveness for. I I need to restore in some way. Maybe um, the problem isn't with some action that you've done. But the problem is a wrong attitude. Maybe you're not really at fault in any way. There's no log in your eye in terms of your fault. It's just a, a wrong, you, you approach with the, the wrong attitude. You, you've, you've known this, you've done this. You're coming in hot to a conversation. I mean, you, you rightfully need to go in and say something, but you know it, you're coming in hot, and you're coming in hot, and as soon as you come in hot, you're exaggerating, you're labeling, you're saying things. And then what happens to the problem? It divides. Now you have two problems. One, the original problem, and two, your attitude. And if the person that you're talking to is shrewd, they'll blame shift from the problem to your attitude. 
I'm not saying that in a good way. I'm just saying that's what shrewd people do. So now we've deflected off of the real problem and say, well, what the real problem is, is you've come in too hot and I don't really like your attitude and blah, blah, blah. And you never address the real problem. And the problem was you came in too hot. You didn't step back and say, okay, I don't have a problem with the action. I don't have any action that I need to think through, but I do have a bad attitude. I'm coming in too hot. And that can happen. And that can become a log so often you see that happen in people trying to resolve conflict. It's, it's not a bad action. It's a bad attitude that becomes a big problem. So those are just sort of some preliminary steps. Before you get to step one, you just need to think through. First of all, I'm not surprised. I'm not flabbergasted that I'm having any kind of conflict. No, I, I'm anticipating. I'm not looking for it, but I'm not surprised. I step back and I, I ask myself, is, is this something that should be overlooked? Maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. I don't know. Let me step back. Let me think about it. And third, am I coming in hot? Am I coming in with the wrong kind of attitude? Now, when you get to through those three steps, then you come to this particular system that Jesus outlines. And I want us to notice first the process. The process, as one commentator says, requires us to keep the circle of people involved in the conflict as small as possible, as long as possible. So that's one of your goals. You're coming in, you're saying, I'm trying to keep it as small as possible, as long as possible. In other places in the Bible, especially in Jesus' teaching, you can see, you can hear him lifting up the unity of the church, the value of brothers living together in unity. So he takes very seriously any kind of disunity. But he understands there's going to be some kind of disunity and there's going to be need, need to be some kind of discipline in some areas. And so he just wants to make sure that when you come in, you're always trying to keep the problem as small as possible, as long as possible. So that's one of the things that we see happening here. Proverbs seventeen fourteen says this, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. And so we want to be careful that we're not starting something that's just going to spill out and wash out all over the congregation. It's really unnecessary. There could be some times that that's necessary, but most of the time it's not. Most of the time the, the church discipline, the, the conflict resolution is going to happen just between one person and one other person. So step, step number one. There's a coldness. There's a, a wall between you and and your brother or sister. Uh, somebody said to me in this peacemaking process that I was involved with a few years ago, this wasn't from the Bible, but it was helpful to me in trying to assess whether I needed to go and talk to a person. They said, do you think about it in the shower? And I thought, what are you talking about? Is that in the Bible anywhere? I haven't heard that. But it was just a way to say, you know, in the shower, you're just not thinking about much. But whatever comes to your mind, you just keep thinking about You keep Does it keep coming back at that point? If it does, then probably it's time to go say something. 
So you have to try to figure out for yourself, what, what, what is it? But usually some kind of wall, some kind of coldness, some kind of distance. I, I used to feel a little bit more warmth there, but I don't know. Something's gotten sideways. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's you. Maybe I can, we can definitely identify the issue. We know what it is. And now, you know, I come in this door and you come in that door. I don't know what it is, but when you get to that point, you say, it's time for me to sit down. And I want to first do that face to face. Now, I'm... I'm I'm putting aside some case like um, physical abuse. I mean, that's a separate case. That's not, I'm not going to require a child to go back and talk to the parent one-on-one and that kind of thing. So anything in that category, we're going to put that to the side at this, for, for, for purposes of our discussion here this morning. But we're talking about the garden variety kind of conflict. And Jesus says the first thing you want to do is you want to, You want to go face to face. You want to sit down one on one. Sitting down one on one means sitting down one on one, not texting down one on one, not emailing down one on one. And that is a real problem in our culture is that people hide behind emails and text and say things they wouldn't say face-to-face. And they try to resolve problems or they take their emotions to the text, and it's really a disaster. Number one, if you ever text or email, it's never one-on-one. It's one-on times however many friends I have on Facebook or how many I can forward this text to. It's never one-on-one. And secondly, I think a lot of discussion could get resolved more when you see somebody face to face than now I'm reading emotion into your text or your email that you didn't intend, but I'm already hot about it. So all kinds of disasters. And I would say particularly for college students. I was listening to a a CD recently by a, a campus minister, and he said, college students are always talking, just never face to face. They're always connected. It's just not face-to-face. And what I see college students losing is the ability to sit down and really resolve conflict face-to-face. So if you're a college student, I'm looking over here because most of you sit here. We all have to learn that to understand what face-to-face really means. And notice the goal in verse 15. If he listens to you, then you've gained your brother back. The word gain is a commercial term meaning wealth. Something's valuable. You've gained a commodity. You've gained some money. You've gained something that has value. So when you sit down and you're having this face-to-face conversation, it may be difficult for you, but you can say before the conversation, you can say, this is difficult for me, but you're valuable. If you weren't valuable, I wouldn't do it. If you weren't valuable, I'd just send out an email. But you're valuable. This relationship is valuable. I don't want this to be shipwrecked. And so as difficult as this is, you are more valuable than the difficulty. I'm not going to hide behind that because I want to gain you back. It's You're a wealth to me. Well, if you come in with that kind of attitude, you're going to get a lot further. So, so you're gaining somebody back. You're willing to risk the confrontation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another person to his own sin. 
Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another person to his own sin. Oh, I don't want to say anything. And it looks tender. Oh, I can't. I mean, I can't confront them. And it feels like, oh, they're so kind. No, that's not kind. To consign someone to a sin and just let them live with it in some way, that's not a kindness. Most of the church discipline can be done in this way. When we think about church discipline, 90% of it takes place at this level. It doesn't take place with me getting involved or other people. Most of it takes place just between two people, and that's by design. Second step, if that doesn't work, you take one or two others along. The, the entire book of 1 Corinthians, as most of you know, is basically a book of church discipline. Problems in the church that Paul's addressing one after another. And he talks about lawsuits beyond, be, uh, with, within the church body with two believers. And he says this in chapter 6, Surely there is one among you wise enough to settle dispute among brothers. So you got these two people that have a dispute, and surely there's got to be somebody in the church that can come in sort of objectively and say, I'm listening, and now let me help you two navigate what's the way forward. That's the whole purpose of, like, the peacemaker ministry. They come in as a, an objective third party. We, we understand that uh, all kinds of things get involved when, when two people have a conflict, especially the closer the two people are. If you're married, if you have a partnership, if you have a long-term relationship, it gets complicated. And you're never sure which way to move. And so sometimes when you get to that point, you just need somebody else. And you don't get your three friends who all agree with you. You have to go find some people who are mature who will say, I'll sit down and listen to both of your sides and I'll try best I can, much like a counselor would, to help you navigate through this particular issue. And I guess when I think about this particular point or this particular step, the, the main thing I'd want you to hear is that there's no shame and there's no stigma in asking for a third party to give you wisdom. You shouldn't be embarrassed to say, we can't figure this out. Because I've seen a lot of problems go a lot farther than they should have because for whatever reason, whether it's pride or whether it's apathy or the belief that you somehow the two of you could get it worked out, just it got, it, too much damage gets done and it would have been easier earlier on to say, can somebody come in and help us? And so I think most of that is a pride issue. Maybe there are other emotions or motives involved. But most of it is like, we should be smart enough to try to figure this out. And I think Jesus is saying there's going to be some issues that are complicated. There's going to be some emotions that are complicated. And you too aren't going to figure out. You've got to get a third party in here to try to help you navigate this particular issue. So I wouldn't want you to wait longer than is necessary. Step number three. If you go through the first two steps, I've sat down with my brother and sister. We've tried. It, it hasn't worked out. I've gotten a third party, one or two other people that we can both equally trust. And we've listened and we've tried to navigate. But the issue somehow is ballooning. It's still harming. There's a hardness on one side, whatever the case may be. And now I, I, that's not working. I've got to take it to the church. This doesn't mean... At 1025, you find me and say, Paul, you know, I've done the first two steps and 
I haven't been able to get through the first two steps. So just, you know, sometime during your announcement period, I'd like to stand up and tell it to the church. That's not what Jesus means here. And you know it's not what Jesus means here because he says in verse 18, you're going to tell it to people who have some kind of authority to bind and loosen. And we talked about this a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 16. Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the leaders of the church. And those keys open things and close things. And part of what they open and close are conflicts. And so you come to the people who have some authority, in this case the elders, and they sit in and they try to make a ruling. And they try to say, yes, this is the way that this should go. And they open doors or they close doors. That's what that means, tell it to the church. And I think that there's a kindness in these last two verses, 18 and 19, that are often read out of context. This whole passage here is about church conflict, about church discipline, about conflict resolution. And, and he, Jesus says, you know, if, if two of you agree, meaning you two leaders, you two people who have authority, if anything that you agree on, anything that you ask, I want you to know that your father in heaven says yes to that. And where you two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm with you in that decision. Meaning, as elders, as people in authority who, who are going to get some of these cases, not many, when you come to these things, it's going to be a hard thing. Because once they got to your door, it's already difficult. And I want you to know that as men who live underneath the Word of God, I've given you authority to open and close, to make decisions. And as long as you're living underneath the word of God, you're letting that saturate your decisions, then I'm with you guys. I'm for that. And that's a great comfort to somebody in leadership who has to make those kinds of decisions occasionally. That God is saying, yes, you, Paul, Kim, Mike, Mark, you guys, I, I'm for you guys. I'm with you in this group of two or three. This isn't when any two or three people gather together, Jesus is there. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a hard decision that has to get made. And somebody has to open something and somebody has to close something. And as elders in the church, we're shepherds. And Jesus says, a thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. And you as shepherds, you have to understand you're going to be the first to be attacked by the wolf because you're going to be out front. And by your authority, I'm saying to you, you've got to close things off and you've got to open doors for people to come in. So it's quite a task to be in church leadership when it comes to church discipline. But I want you to assure you that and we, we think through this process Nobody woke up this morning saying, gosh, I can't wait to get to church and I hope I get involved in some church discipline. I mean, no, nobody had that as sort of a goal this morning. No elder is sitting there going, just looking for an opportunity to get engaged in this. But I want you to know that the elders are willing to, if that's necessary. If some dangerous teaching, if some dangerous person comes in, we're willing to say, no, that can't come in. So you can pray for your elders in that situation.
But most of the conflict, most of the church discipline, most of the conflict resolution is going to happen just between two people. And if you can't get that done, then you find another mature person or two. Say, hey, can you just listen to us? Because we're not, we're not getting very far on this particular issue. 90, 95% of it's going to happen in that particular way. I want to conclude by just coming back to where we started, the marks of a true church. Why would the reformers say that church discipline was in their top three? And my answer is because in the absence of discipline, you don't have freedom, you have chaos. In the absence of discipline, you don't have freedom, you have chaos. And chaos leads to destruction. And Jesus understands that. And he says, guys, I'm going to get 300 of you together in Wilmington in the year 2013. And if there's not some kind of system to go through, you know what? As nice as you 300 are, you know what it's going to end up in? Chaos. It's going to end up like the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And because of pride, because of our great folly, we're going to think, yeah, but I'm right. And now we're going to have 300 churches of one person. (laughs) But in order to stay together, I've given you this system. Any 15-year-old babysitter can immediately observe whether there's a healthy authority and discipline within a family. You know this. Many of you have been a 15-year-old babysitter. You walk in and you go, oh, chaos. Now, I understand when you're leaving your kid, they, they get all excited and all that. I understand. But you know what I'm saying. You can walk in and say, don't want to be around here when they're 14 and 16. Because there's no discipline. It's just chaotic. And so the next time they call you, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy, you know. Golly, thanks for the opportunity, but not ever again. <laughs> Proverbs 5.22, the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his own sin hold him fast. He will die for a lack of discipline, and he will be led astray by his own great folly. Without the love of Christ giving us this system, giving us some system to work on, we would lead ourselves right off a cliff, thinking we were right. And so it's a great kindness. I want you to see church discipline not as an oxymoron, but as a great kindness to say, you you do realize if if I didn't give you a system, you'd lead yourself right off the cliff, thinking you were doing the right thing the whole way. Let's pray together. Lord, I I keep coming back really to the, the song. How wide, how deep. Answer immeasurably wide and deep is your kindness, is your love for us. Part of that includes this passage in Matthew 18 that you kindly gave to your disciples who themselves were going to need to exercise that process on each other.
and then give it away to churches who would eventually give it to us here in Wilmington, North Carolina. Lord, I pray for every member here that every member will eventually have to use this passage in some way. Pray that for your kindness that they would keep the conflict as small as possible, as long as possible. That you would help two people to enter in with the idea of gain rather than a, an attitude of superiority. That you would uh, protect this, converse, this congregation from evil. But when it comes our way, would you encourage the leaders, both now and forevermore, to have the courage to stand and open and close when necessary. Lord, we don't do it to be a closed community. We, be, we do it to be a closer community to each other and to you so that would strengthen us as we go out and minister to our friends in the world. Take what we have and use it for your purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.